Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Mind Escape. We have episode number 228 today. We're going to be discussing psychedelics and panpsychism with our guest Peter Shersted Hughes. Uh, this is the second time he's been on. We had him on a couple years ago, which we uh, had a very interesting conversation about philosophy of mind and psychedelics, kind of some similar stuff we're going to be discussing today. But uh, before we get started, he has a new book coming out called Modes of Sentience. I have the link down below. Go check that out. Uh, and it's coming out, I think in two days, the hardback, and then it'll be fully out on the 14th. Uh, so again, I have the link down below and his website as well. So go check that out. We are going to do a Patreon segment with him. So if you're interested, uh, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash mind escape podcast for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments, tons of stuff on there. Uh, just put up one with, uh, Bob Davis and, um, uh, uh, Daniel McQueen. I mean, we've got tons of stuff up there, so go check that out oh, if yeah. you're interested. Um, let's see here. Oh, we're also on Discord if you'd like to chat on there. Uh, also, head on over to indrasweb.org. This is the social media platform we created to connect open minds. So, whether you want to speculate, hypothesize, theorize, it's the perfect place to do it. Go set up a profile. Um, and uh, we're working on still getting that in the App Store. So, and if anybody's interested, we do have this Mind Escape t-shirt we are going to give away. We only have larges, or yeah, larges and mediums left if you're interested. Um, so if you're interested in getting a free one, all you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, take a screenshot of it, send it to mindescapepodcast at gmail.com. That will enter you to win. And again, thank you again to Cole who won last month. So we really appreciate that. Uh, and without further ado, welcome back on the show, Peter. How are you? Thank you. Yeah, um, I'm well, thanks. Uh, good to be here again. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Uh, I saw your new book was coming out. I know we were trying to get you on before and things got kind of chaotic, but uh, I'm glad we were able to fit this in. And, um, you know, panpsychism has been kind of a hot topic lately. I know, I don't know if you know Philip Goff, but I think he was just on Joe Rogan recently, and I've seen a lot of uptick in panpsychism talk of late, especially uh, not just panpsychism in general, but also within the psychedelic community. So uh, I wanted to ask you, it means slightly different things to different people and the way that they interpret it. Uh, how do you think about it, or how do you define panpsychism? Um, well, it's, um, I mean, okay, well, the etymology of the word is uh, from Patrizzi, this Renaissance thinker, 
and pan means all and psyche means um my soul or mind and um so that's why some people don't like this idea of the soul because it often means or it implies that the soul and the body are distinct as in dualism um so for example whitehead's version of panpsychism is called pan experientialism uh, because really sort of the the mind is part of the body as it were and the environment um but so i understand it not in a dualistic sense some people but you can that is a version of it um and also the psyche i don't understand necessarily as consciousness by which i mean awareness um as opposed to subconsciousness i'm i generally uh, mean by it when i use the term uh, sentience thus my book modes of sentience um and i i think sentience is a useful word because it sort of incorporates all forms of experience all forms of mentality the conscious as well as the subconscious uh, and so on you know there's co cognitive concepts emotions um rhythms of duration and so on it's just a sort of catch-all phrase so when i say panpsychism i mean pansentience really and um by that have um all units of subjectivity have a basic well um have, there is then in all all things and it depends how you define things uh, but there is essentially in all things um a very basic at the least a very basic form of sentience then mentality experience not consciousness so it's panpsychism pan doesn't generally mean that you know like a plant has a consciousness like we have consciousness thinking about you know last weekend what it did last weekend or something like that mm. it just means a sort of plants you know like the ancient greeks believed thought about it a plant might have a sort of basic um you know sort of um basic joy for sunlight and water and whatnot you know not necessarily with any kind of concepts or memory or anything like this basic memory perhaps that was actually going to be my next question about aristotle and his three levels of consciousness the plant consciousness and then the animal consciousness which inhabited yeah. the uh plant consciousness and then you have human consciousness which has all three within it would you consider him an early panpsychism to some level panpsychist to some level um to, to an extent yeah i mean it was quite prevalent throughout ancient greece this i mean rg collingwood wrote this great book called the idea of nature where, and he distinguishes three periods so it wasn't just aristotle it's plato as well if you read him plato talks about um sort of vegetative soul and so on as aristotle did his student the but, sophist um, yeah i think the sophist he has some panpsychist ideas in there and the uh, Timaeus as well, I believe. But um, yeah, so Collingwood sort of distinguishes this early period with Aristotle, the Greeks, you know, and the hylomorphic period, which is formed panpsychism, really. And then with the Renaissance, what Collingwood calls the Renaissance, you have this um, shift away from believing that nature was uh, like an organism, organic with uh, in, you know embedded sentience, and rather it shifts to a view of nature as a machine, um, which obviously sort of correlated to the technological. Um, revolution that was to come and and then he has a third period which is based on history and evolution uh, which he wrote he published in 1945 and i don't think i don't think really that has come to pass i think we're still in the machine age um generally speaking but anyway yeah there is there is a lot of precedence in ancient greek thought for um believing that you know plants for example then yeah had a had a basic form of psyche so but it was never really that well developed there you know it was yeah it was kind of almost taken for granted just as we we take for granted in the west today that plants don't have any sentience 
This is why, and I think this this taking for granted is very in, is really interesting phenomenon. Like, why do people? Like, I saw the parts of the Philip Goff interview with Joe Rogan that you mentioned, and Joe Rogan wasn't really buying it. At least in the right, segments no. that I watched, he was skeptical. And I think one reason for people thinking of this as um, uh, kind of a little bit crazy is that we have this neuroessentialist default belief in the West. In other words, there's a belief that the brain is sufficient and necessary for consciousness or for mentality. And this is a belief that is never really questioned in the neurosciences and never really questioned in, um, in you know, sort of everyday world. But it's really hard to prove it in any, any, in any way. You know, you can't prove it empirically. You can't prove that a plant hasn't, has or has not got consciousness. Uh, you can't prove that a brain is necessary for sentience, you know. This is just mm -hmm. assumed because of brain damage and so on. Um, and you can't prove either that it's sufficient. In other words, then, you know, the brain might rely on other external factors that allow for that condition, uh, sentience. Mm. So these, so, so these are very important metaphysical questions um, that are just simply um, not realized as questions, but are simply assumed, like we assume that the brain is necessary and conscious, necessary and sufficient for mentality. Therefore, uh, because a brain is necessary for mentality, a plant couldn't possibly be sentient. So that belief is generally based on um, an axiom that cannot be, has not been proved. We, it would be even questionable whether it can be proved, you know, at all. Um, why has this come about? Well, I mean, the classic story is that Descartes, Galileo, first of all, and then, you know, following that, Descartes really more so uh, divided um, mind and matter in, into two very distinct substances. So you have mind or the soul, which has, you know, thoughts, emotions, whatnot. And then you have matter, which is, you know, remember Descartes was a mathematician. Um, matter then was purely geometric, pure extension. And therefore, it could be understood through understood through mathematics. Um, it didn't have sentience within it. This was a division that uh, Descartes made, Galileo made, other people as well, um, which then uh, sort of founded the scientific method. This is uh, Philip, what Philip Goff was speaking about with Rogan, actually, in the part I saw. It founded the scientific method, and therefore, the, sci the scientific method itself has to exclude uh, any forms of any form of, or its subject matter rather, has to exclude any form of sentience. It turns qualities into quantities, in other words. But, but the in, so with panpsychism, you know, it's very interesting to look at the history as to why people don't believe it anymore. And also, like, as, you, as you said, you know, it was once believed. You look at the history why it's not believed and why it's taken to be crazy. Then you understand that it's dependent upon uh, beliefs that are really not haven't been proved at all so you then once you realize that it opens you up to more possibilities i'm not so i'm not you know i'm not extremely dogmatic about this panpsychism i mean i think it's just the most plausible parsimonious view otherwise you get into other paradoxes you know but of course mm -hmm. i'm always open to new ideas and new evidence do you think the building blocks of reality or particles of subatomic particles things like that do you think that they have some level of consciousness, not like what we were describing, but just some level of sentience, you know? Uh, yes, I do. I mean, a basic, basic uh, form of sentience, not consciousness, so it would be more akin to our subconsciousness, you know? But it wouldn't be nothing. It would be um, a basic form. 
Um, what that would be like is would be very, very difficult to determine. Just like it's very difficult to determine, um, you know, how another person uh, is like, you know, to get it's, it's it's almost impossible to get into the mind of another person, let alone, let's say, you know, your pet dog, let alone get the mouse in your house, <laughs> and so on right. and so forth. So you get further away from human organisms to you know molecules, as you say, um, our sort of um, understanding of it becomes less and less. Our sympathy with it, our the parallels are lost to a certain extent. That's not to say there are not parallels, you know, just as we have a physical body, so does a molecule, you know. So there, but of course, a molecule's body is very distinct from our own body. And likewise, you know, it would be the same difference with the mind. Our mind is very distinct from that, you know, mind or mental event, better, better say event than mind. Really. So, um, yeah, we can't fathom it. But by the theory of panpsychism, it's it's a belief that, you know, mind was always part of the universe. Um, it didn't emerge one day in evolution. This is, in my PhD, I've called this the big pang, uh, the big pang theory, you know, pang of conscious, consciousness in this case. So, like, you know, if you don't believe in, you see, it's quite radical. If you don't believe in panpsychism, you'd have to believe that at some point in the history of the universe, there was, first of all, no sentience at all, not the slightest touch of drive or anything. But then one day, or or one moment rather, um, pang, there was suddenly a basic, basic form of sentience that emerged maybe from a singular, single-celled organism or something like this. Um, but that, of course, is a radical conjecture. I mean, you know, you've got a, that's a radical break in the universe. You know, first of all, you've got a purely uh, objective universe, as it were, and then suddenly you've got this intrusion of sentience. And, you know, there's no evidence that that ever occurred. And, in fact, it's questionable, again, whether you, one could um, gain such evidence. It's a pretty impossible thing to gain evidence for. But nonetheless, it's believed. It's like a faith position in many ways that... Um, that consciousness or sentience rather emerged historically, but also in the common way of thinking about things, there's the belief that conscious sentience emerges, um, you know, synchronously as well. So when, when a, at some point a fetus suddenly begins a form of sentience, you know, suddenly from the, from the physiological matter, mind emerges. How this happens, of course, is the great, you know, so-called hard problem of consciousness. David Chalmers coined it in 95. It's an old problem, though. And it's like, you know, how mind, emer how physical, a lot of people, I realize, don't really, can't, don't easily get their head around this. So it's just not, it's just alien, alien to them. So I'll just, I'll go through it a little bit, if you like. Um, it's the notion that it's the mind matter mystery. It's like, why do things that move, um, if we understand things just in this way, why do um, neurons, firing impulses you know through their dendrites and axons if you actually you know zoom into it you see molecules neurotransmitters passing between synapses of neurons and stuff you know maybe oscillated maybe not but you get a very you can get gain a very physical picture of this how do things moving make emerge something such as an emotion or a feeling or a thought you know this is the hard problem of consciousness how do you get mind out of meat basically right hmm. um this is a huge this is the huge problem so panpsychist will say the mind was always in there you know it's you, you, know, when we them, you know how, how can you have your pudding you know you got to ask these uh, <laughs> particles if you can't eat your meats <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so so um but it 
of course, um, yeah, so, you know, it's very hard, in other words, to get mentality from pure physicality. But the interesting thing there is we don't really understand what physica the physical means, you know. Mm. If you look at the history of the physical, always look, looking at the history of these things always sort of uh, helps people, you know. You look at what the physical means. Well, I mentioned Descartes, and for Descartes, the physical was just space, 3D space, extension, as he called it, you know. As time went by, we added forces, impulse, push-pull, you know. And then later on, you know, spin and uh, charge and so on and so forth, you know. So you look at the history of matter, and it's constantly we're constantly adding um, qualities to what it is. But of course, we shouldn't assume that we've now reached a level where we fully understand it. You know, in a few hundred years, they'll look back at us as we did people a few hundred years ago and sort of laugh at us. Um, so we should always be humble in 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 our in realizing that we do not understand the full extent of what matter is. And it's my belief that you know. Um, one of the qualities, as it were, of matter, although I wouldn't, shouldn't really speak that way, but um, an aspect of matter is mind. You know, This is mm. a, a thing that will be accepted, hopefully, in the future. But we haven't yet got there. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely things in the quantum world and things like superposition and things that um, they're trying to figure out ways to uh, predict or quantify the way that these things operate. And it seems like you're right. It seems like they're just trying to keep adding new things to the docket to kind of say, Oh, it's this or, Oh, it's that. And, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, even... and also, sorry, I was just going to say, no, no, sorry. Um, there's a slight delay. So, but, um, you know, even physicists don't agree with each other as to the nature of matter, you know, different, there are physics is, there's not just one physics yeah. a fundamental, you know, about dimensions of space and so on, you know, absolutely. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I would agree with, you, you know, a lot of what you said there uh, personally. I think that that's kind of we're on the same page or same track there. Um, in terms of, um, I think we discussed this, but you think consciousness is primary. That's what we were just discussing. Is there, But do you think is there a difference between um, pantheism and Spinoza's God? Because I know you're big into Spinoza and uh, I think I seen I saw you tweet something recently about pantheism um, yeah um, well you know the word pantheism was coined by Joseph Raphson and it was coined by him 20 years after Spinoza died uh, to refer to Spinoza's philosophy so I think it's quite right to say that Spinoza was a pantheist at least if you go by the words some people say he's a panentheist but I don't really accept that um, panentheist means that God is nature and God is more than nature as well. Uh, pantheism simply is God is nature. And Spinoza says, you know, uh, God or nature, you know, it's, he's quite explicit about it. So it's quite right to call um, Spinoza a pantheist. He was also, in my view, a panpsychist um, or parallelist, as Spinoza scholars prefer to, to say it. Um, it was a pantheist because... So he equated, this is what got him into a lot of trouble. He's still in trouble. Did you see that um, latest, I don't know if you saw that latest thing in the news last week about um, a Spinoza scholar being denied access to the uh, synagogue complex in um, Amsterdam. No, because Sp yeah, he's, you know, hundreds of years, he died 1677 Spinoza and he was excommunicated in his 20s by the his fellow Jews. And, um, and still today, <laughs> this excommunication some rabbis believe holds 
And so the Spinoza scholar who wanted to go to the to the complex um, for his film he was making was denied access because he, you know, he said he devoted his whole life to the study of a heretic, basically. Mm. So it's still mm. powerful. And Spinoza was, but one of the reasons Spinoza was excommunicated and one of the reasons his books were banned by the church as well was that he said, that, yeah, that God was nature. And uh, so a lot of people accused him of atheism for that reason. They said, well, if you're saying that God is nature, you're really saying there's just nature and no God. So therefore you're an atheist. <laughs> and right. um, so, yeah, there was, yeah, it was, it was a very controversial view in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, but uh, but by nature, Spinoza didn't mean simply matter. And this is what brings out the pantheism, I think. So um, Spinoza believed that space was infinite and um, space was infinite. And that was an aspect of nature, one attribute of nature, space, extension. And us humans had two ways of accessing that nature or God or substance. And that, that was through the attributes of thought and extension. So there's two ways of us seeing the same thing, God or substance or nature. And that is one way is through um, the extensive world we see. And another one is our internal sort of mind. But he said there's an infinite number of attributes, you know, of, in other words, expressions of that same soul, substance, God, nature. Um, but just humans haven't got access to it, interestingly. Mm. Uh, but so... If there then, there are two, at least two ways, there are more than two, but two human ways of accessing that soul God. One is extension, and that then refers to the infinite space of nature. The other way, way is thought. That means everything that is extended has an element of thought to it. That's his panpsychism or parallelism. That applies to humans. It also then applies downwards to plants and so on. And, and that's a kind of panpsychism. But upwards as well, it also applies and so infinite space has its parallel infinite intellect, as he calls it. And so that's an, in, an aspect of his God, you know, this infinite intellect. Like, um, but it's not a God who loves you or hates you. It's an indifferent God. It's not a very consoling God at all. You know, he didn't send down Jesus and so, right? right. It's, a kind of, it's more like Aristotle's prime mover God, if you've read that in the metaphysics. Mm. Um, it's just an indifferent God, really. Um, but that that God is the infinite intellect, um, and for Spinoza, our finite minds are part of that infinite intellect. And this, in this, he 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 was um, he was kind of um, he was inspired by people like Maimonides, who believed in this infinite intellect of which we are a part, just like our bodies are part of infinite space. And so this is really his his uh, this is the sort of outline of his pantheism. Interestingly, this infinite intellect. Um, was spoken of inspired the British idealists and they started speaking about um, eternal consciousness and this eternal consciousness turn sort of lent, lent itself to this term cosmic consciousness that was uh, I think coined by Edward Carpenter but used by uh, R.M. Bach in his book Cosmic Consciousness 1901 and then 1902 William James used it in the varieties of religious experience and then um, of course he linked it to um, psychedelics, you know, nitrous oxide, which I include as a psychedelic ether and so on. And um, and then, of course, in the mid 20th century, cosmic consciousness became almost like a platitude, a sort of cliche amongst the certain 
you know hippie, hippie demographic and whatever mm. but uh you know and 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 in a way Aldous Huxley when he wrote about in the doors of perception you know his book about masculine experience he spoke about mind at large that of course also is related to um this etiology of this infinite intellect, this kind of pantheist God, which goes all the way back to Spinoza, but before that, Maimonides, and that has influence again in Aristotle, you know. So it always goes back to Aristotle or Plato, it seems, you know. Yeah. And we're gonna be getting into that. Those are the well. grandfathers. <clears throat> um yeah. yeah, and Einstein was uh a big Spinozist and uh I know he had similar ideas of God. Some people think Oh, Einstein, he was, you know, a hardcore scientist, materialist, but he actually had some pretty interesting takes as well on that. Um, yeah. He wrote um, two poems about Spinoza, and he always he said he believed in Spinoza's God, and he was the greatest modern philosopher because he brought, brought mind and body together and so on, yeah. Mm. He was a big uh, acolyte. So how can psychedelics inform us in regards to panpsychism? Is it the feeling of being one with something greater or is it the freedom to look upon the world without the burden of this built-in evolutionary pareidolia? Like, what do you think's going on there? There's, there's many interesting connections. Um, for one, one recent one I've looked, started looking into with um, some, this anthropologist, um, Ed, uh, Luis Eduardo Luna, um, is the fact that Amerindian cos indigenous cosmologies, um, they are animist and animism and panpsychism are really, you know, two sides of the same coin. Um, they believe, you know, the, the trees have, you know, are embedded with souls and so on and so forth. So that's a type, another type of um, panpsychism, really, animism as a type of panpsychism. Animism originally was coined by Tyler in a, in a, a negative sense, but it doesn't have that connotation anymore, I don't think. But um, so their cosmology, the whole like metaphysics of reality is this sort of living world in which they live, um, going up to the sun, the stars and whatnot. And uh, their cosmologies are in completely intertwined with psychedelic use, ayahuasca, you know, and so on. And, um, you know, by taking these psychedelics, they... Uh, they gain access, well, greater access to this this uh, this kind of sentient world of theirs. So that's one interesting uh, respect in which panpsychism and psychedelics connect. I mean, it's intrinsic to those cultures, as I say. Something that I'm beginning to look into, so I don't want to say too much at the moment. It's really fascinating. There's this great book called The Falling Sky by um, an indigenous shaman called Davy Kopenawa, and that describes his shamanic journeys, you know, with Hayuasca, Yahe, and and, and and so on and um it's just really fascinating you know um it doesn't talk about like you know mystical experiences of unity as we would in the west and the east it rather speaks about like especially the shapiri these little ancestral spirits like lilliputians actually um which uh guide guide their world so that's one interesting respect another way another thing i'm looking at beginning to look at as well with regard to panpsychism is and psychedelics is um, there's there's recent scientific studies by Sam Gandhi and, and others um, to show that psychedelics foster um, or kindle a kind of a, a nature connectedness. So you take psychedelics with eyes open, you know, you, you see a natural object and you feel more at one with it, as it were. You have to be careful with this word unity, oneness, because it means so many different things, I realize, you know, through different right. fields. But 
in this sense, you begin um, a kind of sympathy and intuition or a connection then with nature. Now, the interesting question for me is this with regard to panpsychism. From a neuroessentialist point of view, you know that consciousness really is just an epiphenomenon of the mind, of the brain rather. Um, this nature connect connectedness, which in these papers at least leads to greater mental health, this, this connectedness must be some kind of illusion, must be a delusion, because, you know, um, plants, let's say, don't have any form of sentience, um, so you can't feel an intrinsic connection with them. They have no their mind at all, you know. They have no intrinsic worth. They have no teleology. They have no uh, sentience. So, so any nature connectedness there must be some kind of strange hallucination you're having. Whereas, of course, in panpsychism, one can begin to explain this nature connectedness in a veridical manner. In other words, in a more tr um, true manner, as it were, you know, or pos it opens up the possibility that the um, empathy you're feeling with the natural world is not a hallucination, but actually some kind of um, prehension, as what Ed would say, some mm -hmm. kind of connection with another sentient being. So, and if, of course, you know, on, if you step out of that, that if you accept such a metaphysic, panpsychism, then um, you would view such nature connectedness through psychedelics as uh, of more value, I think, you know, because if you consider it to be a hallucination, you might feel it when you're un under the influence, but afterwards you say, well, that's weird, something strange that happened, you know, but of course it's complete rubbish. That would then probably, I would, I would guess, um, not be of as much use to your mental health as if you um, believe that there's some kind of truth there. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, a hypothesis I've been throwing around, I know other people discuss this too, um, but I've been throwing this around for the last few years is the idea that metaphysics are at the core or psychedelics are at the core of all metaphysics, meaning like the psychedelic experience, altered states. This is where we get these ideas from. They don't, if you just lived in day-to-day -day consciousness, I, I find it hard to believe that you would just come up with some of these ideas yeah. given, you know, your built-in evolutionary, like, like I said, pareidolia, and you're just surviving and putting things together that way. So, yeah. um, you know, you have Plato's theory of forms, the allegory of the cave. Again, in the sophist, he talks about panpsychism. Socrates, you have Socrates' morals and ethics and what happens when you come down from a psilocybin trip? What happens when you come down from an intense psychedelic trip? You have this, you know, this, this willingness and wantingness to become a better person. Um, you know, you can go to Pythagoras and in Euclid, you know, maybe they were seeing geometry after their Eleusinian mysteries experience, you know, like being able to see the thing that you've been um, mm -hmm. speculating on would be very powerful. Parmenides, our senses are lying to us, you know, um, all these great thinkers, we were talking about ancient Greece, you know, you can go back to the Lucinian mysteries and a lot of these, you know, people came from, uh, you know, that time, but they also had similar experiences and they all had to participate in the greater mysteries once in their life. Uh, I mean, but you could even go back to like cave art, like Selva, uh, Pascuala that, that, uh, in Spain that, that with the, the, uh, Solosa bees painted in the cave wall and that, um, the Algerian cave, you know, art that Terence McKenna used in a lot of his stuff. So I guess it's like a stoned ape for metaphysics as opposed to like evolutionary 
biology, something along those lines. But I mean, wh- how do you th- how do you feel about that? Like, do you think there's something to that? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Henri Bergson, this great French philosopher, I, I speak about a lot. He, um, in his last book, Two Sources of uh, Morality and Religion, he talks about the Orphic religion in uh, ancient Greece, inspiring Pythagoras, and in turn inspiring Plato. You know, we don't have any remnants of Pythagoras's own writings, but only his followers. But he was a big influence to Plato, yeah. And then, of course, as you say, you know, Plato undoubtedly went to the Eleusinian Mysteries. It was a common thing there, like the religion and ritual that lasted 2,000 years in ancient Greece, only 30 miles from Athens. But as well as that, I mean, you had Dionysian festivals. The wine in ancient Greece was psychoactive. They always had to dilute it with water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, there's much evidence for it. And before that, you know, you, there's also, of course, you know, the Soma and the Vedas and so on. And there's a lot of evidence for ancient mm-hmm. use, not to mention what, what happened in South America, Middle America. So um, it's nothing new. Uh, and in Plato's Phaedo, which is also called On the Soul, where he first really introduces the notion of dualism. He says, I want to be counted amongst the mystics, um, the Dionysians. And then after that, he talks, he tries to rationally argue for dualism, that the soul and body are distinct. So, I mean, you can speculate that there was some kind of visions that he had. He talks about his visions in the Phaedrus, for example, um, that, that, that he that he intuited then through some kind of exceptional experience, whether, I mean, I think most people will accept that he had exceptional experiences, whether they were occasioned by something akin to psychedelics is another question. I think the likelihood is some people just don't, don't accept that, but I think the likelihood is, is there. And, um, but there's a, there's also a Pluto, the Plutonian caves, like right there too, near Eleusis. I, I, I keep thinking like, Oh, he was having this experience, probably walked over there and had this kind of epiphany. I'm not saying that that's exactly what happened, but I could see that happening, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and one of his um, dialogues is based on, you know, the beginning of a river, which is part of the Lesser Mysteries, and, you know, it's next to the Lesser Mysteries. So there's a lot, but you have to remember, of course, you know, the mysteries were called that because, partly because they were, it was forbidden to speak about them, you know. Right. Yeah, arrested for it. So it's. Yeah, it's Alcibiades kind of, at that dinner party getting yeah, right, in trouble. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. So anyway, um, but I think yeah, there was um, there there, mu- there was an influence. I think generally with philosophy as well. I mean, philosophy in the broad sense, um, often one starts with an intuition, and then after that, you try to sort of make sense of that intuition uh, rationally because that's our prosaic consciousness, you know, which is good for practical life. You know, finding out, working out means of achieving an end. You know, usually survival or development, will to power, whatever. Um, there was this interesting. There was this poet, Roman Roland, who spoke of the oceanic experience, which um, he was corresponding with Freud. Uh, I've written about this in my chapter on Spinoza and Five MEO DMT in another book coming out called um, Philosophy and Psychedelics, published by Bloomsbury in May, June. It's an edited volume. I've got one chapter and the introduction in there. I edited it as well with Christine Hauskeller. But um, in there, I talk about uh, the connection between Roman Roland um, and the oceanic feeling, which some people is another word for like the inner mystical experience. Um, he speaks about that to Freud, who's very skeptical about it all. Um, and then Freud sort of uh, writes about it in the future of an illusion and so on and becomes a staple uh, of parlance in psychedelic circles thereafter. But the interesting thing is when you look at this oceanic experience from Roland, he 
talks about it in terms of Spinoza. So, um, and, and by that, I mean an intuition of Spinozism. He's got this book called The Flash of Spinoza, right? Or The Flash of mm. Spinoza, Roland. And Deleuze, the French philosopher Deleuze writes about this, and he says, Spinoza's something like this, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know, Spinoza stands out amongst philosophers because his whole system, his pantheistic, pan-psychological system, metaphysics, can be intuited in a flash like this. And, uh, but interestingly, it's, you can sort of get it, as Roman Roland spoke of, in this flash, but at the same time, you can um, understand it rationally as well. Spinoza himself tried to uh, describe, ex explicate his whole system through the geometric order, like following Euclid, in a very, very rational way. But that whole rational way in the ethics, his main book, ends with this notion of the intellectual love of God. By, mm -hmm. And remember, by God, he means nature in this qualified sense. And this, again, then becomes like an intuition of the whole rational system. So um, I think um, psychedelics, but not only psychedelics, other, other forms of intuition as well, can provide for such flashes of intuition, metaphysical intuition, as you say. Um, Patrick Lundborg, a really interesting Swedish writer on psychedelics, died a few years ago. He's got a book called Psychedelia. He says pantheism and, and monism or holism are two of the main psychedelic virtues, you know. So pantheism is core, it seems, to a lot of um, psychedelic experiences. But of course, people might intuit it and then they come out of it. And if they haven't got sort of training in or any, any knowledge at all about Spinoza or pan what pantheism even means, it'd be very hard for them to articulate that and then justify it to themselves. And this is why I believe personally, and it's another thing I'm getting into at Exeter University, is... Um, when people talk about integration of psychedelic experiences, um, you know, how does that come about? You know, it's I don't think it's good enough just to speak to some counsellor, talk about these weird experiences one had, and they said, well, you know, how's it affecting your life? And so, I mean, a, I think a more solid form of integration would be to place such psychedelic experiences into a philosophical metaphysical system. You know, in other words, make sense of what you've experienced, like the unity of all. What does that mean? It's easy to say. Mm. How does it relate to, for example, Spinoza's philosophy or Whitehead's for that matter? But to complicate things further, <laughs> um, looking at this like indigenous American, you know, uses of psychedelics, these notions of pantheism and uni and uh, like sort of unio mystica, they're not really there, you know. They do have, like the West has Lilliputians, as I say, little people, it's a real mystery. Um, but they don't really report these senses of unity. So then the next question comes up, then this is other really interesting question in philosophy about perennialism as against contextualism. So is it the case, like Aldous Huxley believed, and now that's William James, that um, all religious fundamental experiences are the same regardless of culture and the interpretations differ according to a culture, this is perennialism. It's always the same. Or is it the case, the other extreme, found, founded really by a guy called Stephen Katz, Jewish scholar, um, does context completely determine not just the interpretation, but the experience as well? So, you know, indigenous Americans might experience jaguars and snakes and so on, whereas Westerners, with a sort of Christian, Judaic Christian tradition, will experience you know, the oneness of the universe. This is an interesting question. I'm somewhere in the middle because 
for a start, the Western tradition incorporates a lot of East. So not just Western, you know, especially in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of Zen Buddhism has brought brought in, you know, with DT Suzuki especially, to inform the Western worldview. So it's not really part of our culture. It became it very quickly. Um, secondly, there are similarities with Lilliputianism, like I say, little people. Thirdly, obviously your own life and memories um, will have, can have an impact on your psychedelic experiences. That's part of therapy. You know, you go through lost memories or whatever, right? So no one's doubting that, that your life and culture must have, can have some influence. But it just seems to me that when you talk about very high level psychedelic experiences, especially I'd say those induced by 5-MeO-DMT, they're so completely alien to your life and your culture that it's very hard to argue they're conditioned by it, you know? There's nothing to do, there's no memories there of your life. You're not even self-conscious. There's there's mentality, but there's not self-consciousness because there are no concepts. There's, there's nothing really to do with your culture there. Afterwards, of course, you could interpret it as seeing the light of God or something. But the experience itself, I don't think, can be said to be conditioned by culture. Just like I don't think heroin experience can be conditioned by culture really fully. Obviously, the heroin has some kind of universal or at least ver- some kind of common effect on people regardless of where you are. Same could be said with paracetamol even. Yeah, so, I mean, if you read a lot of, like, trip reports, you know, that's where you see a lot of this pantheism, panpsychism. A lot of these people aren't, like you mentioned, aren't even really aware of, you know, what these, what the terminology is, what it specifically includes. It's just, like, has anybody else experienced this? And, you know, that's the first time they've ever, you know, known or experienced something of that nature. So I don't know if, as you're mentioning, if it's colored by previous i know some things are because i can speak from my own experience but i don't know if these like um groundbreaking or breakthrough experiences are uh as you mentioned are really touched by any of that stuff i guess it's just something we have to keep an eye on because i can go back and forth with that and i have uh, we've had a lot of different people on the show discussing these topics and it's kind of swung back and forth at times so um, I mean, yeah, you have, to be, you have to be very careful about um, people's expectations, which might prime the experience itself, of course, and then the interpretations afterwards as well. You know, they might have an experience and they just cling, get this word pantheism that other, other people have spoken about and say, yeah, it was pantheistic, right. without really understanding what that means. Um, but uh, then again, maybe not. But it's you have to really try to, it's very hard to distinguish the the experience someone had from their report of it. Right. And we've even looked at, I've even asked a bunch of different people who've had, um, you know, ayahuasca experiences in the Amazon or in South America. And then I've asked people that have had analog experiences with the different, you know, like uh, uh, Peganum harmala mixed with some sort of Phalaris grass or something like that. Is there a difference? Because even maybe just those, the compounds within the actual uh, plants might have might color the experience too. I've even looked at that, but it seems to not necessarily be the case from everybody I've talked to. So, uh, but it is an interesting thought, nonetheless. Yeah, um, I mean, certainly on low and me- medium doses, it seems the type of drug has um, an effect on the experience. I mean, salvia divinorum, for example, oh, yeah. seems to be quite uh, <laughs> different well, from psilocybin. But then, you know, a higher, a very high doses. I mean, I've heard people speak about extremely high doses of LSD, which what seem to be it's very similar to 5-MeO-DMT, you know. So this requires further phenomenological analysis, I think. 
Yeah, yeah I was going to ask too, what, uh, what does the different substances have? Like what kind of effect would that have? But I, obviously you guys are talking more about DMT than, you know, psilocybin and LSD, but you would think that the different drugs would have a different outlook as well. Yeah, right, precisely. So if you take, um, you know, standard DMT, as it were, um, it seems you get a lot of people talking about aliens. Psilocybin seems to be go the other way towards instead of science fiction towards fantasy, you know, fairies and elves and stuff. You know, I mean, and, I've um, gone, I've it, gone it, ten it, grams it, dried of psilocybin, and everything kind of just dissolved uh, into like yeah. patterns, straight patterns. That was pretty. It was just almost like fractals. Um, so it kind of felt very primordial uh, in a way. But yeah, I wouldn't. I didn't actually encounter any like entities in that experience. I've had other experiences where I've had entities, but. Uh, yeah, you can go pretty deep on all these things and have transcended experiences. So. Yeah, and of course it differs not only the drug and the dose, but also um, the mindset you're in at the time. There's classic, you know, set and setting, and then the setting, the environment you're in, will have some kind of impact. Usually, it's about comfort there. Um, and but when I say impact, obviously with eyes open, it will have profound impact. You know, with yeah. eyes closed, which is always the more interesting in my in my view um the question is what is the real <laughs> the environment seems to have less of an effect you know um well that's obvious in yeah. a way with the eyes closed but um yeah determining how the environment can have in your culture and your inculcation your whole life history can have an effect on eyes closed high dose uh experiences i think that is a really interesting question that it's very hard to determine because you know when you do studies on this you always rely on reports and then psychologists psychiatrists always try to then they get the report and then they quantify yeah. the report and then they put it into graphs and it all looks fancy and whatever but really the interesting question is do, can you really trust that report like i say um how when people use a word like pantheism do they even know what it means mm. or what do they understand they're different versions of it so which one are they referring to you know um and do, do they actually mean like pan, panentheism for example um the Stephen Katz paper on criticizing a lot of mystical um, philosophy argued that, for example, when we use the word unity for a lot of um, psychedelic or mystical experiences, psychedelic experiences can be part of that. Um, he said the word unity could be used to translate sort of Zen Buddhist notion of the void, right? But at the same time, it can be um, used to translate Jewish forms of union mystica and he said those you know for, you know experientially those are two radically different forms of experience but we have one word to sort of that umbrellas everything and so when you have a report that you know you felt one with everything I mean you, you can you can ramify that into a lot of different types you know there's often not done you just got unity how far, how much did you feel unity one to ten and then that's fed into graphs and stuff and I mean, to be fair, to be honest, um, a lot of these scientific studies on psychedelics are quite poor. They're really, they don't, they don't distinguish. There was this recent one, for example, I won't name names, but it, it was about mm. it was trying to show that um, <laughs> psychedelics. No, no. <laughs> I'm sure you'll know which one I mean, if you just Google it, but it was, it was going to, sh it sought to show that psychedelics change one's metaphysical beliefs. And, um, it was done by a questionnaire via email to people who went on ayahuasca retreats, right? First of all, I don't think that's a good way of deciphering this stuff, you know. Mm. The questionnaire was loaded with, like, you know, interpretations of experience. 
for a start. Sure. It was not, not followed up by actual interviews or anything. But the, from a philosophical point of view, the options didn't even, even include pantheism and monism, which I found really strange because, like I say, Lundborg said these are two of the main psychedelic core virtues, you know. Mm. So yeah, I think we have to, psych, you know, we have to take psychedelic studies, scientific studies with a pinch of salt. And also now, of course, there's also this other ulterior motive to make money out of them as, as therapy. And as a result, you know, you might get skewed results. You get might get emphasis of positive results and stuff like that, you know. Not right. to say that they're not useful for therapy. I believe they are. But um, you have to be really skeptical when you look at the details about how it's, how it's sort of, how a lot of these conclusions are, are uh, created. Yeah, I like it all. I mean, I like knowing the science, but I also appreciate the mystical mysticism aspects of it as well. That's what helped me with my issues, my OCD and stuff. Uh, but I also like the stuff we're talking about too, the philosophical uh, points of view and philosophical takes on it as well. So I like all of it. <clears throat> I think there's, there's room for all of it, but I agree with you. Uh, some bleed into others sometimes and creates kind of uh, chaos at times. Um, I mean, it's, you know, that's a good thing. You should look at all perspectives um, and with a critical eye, though, you know, philosophical perspectives as well, of course. But uh, sure. I think uh, it's just such an early science and, uh, you know, um, we just don't know what's going on. Yeah. Also, there's the interesting phenomenon of really bad trips that are not, you know, needn't be positive even in the long term. Um, so, yeah, much more to be be done about it. But, you know, it's good that there's so much research now being done, you know. Mm -hmm. it's a good thing I'm yeah and to your point you're talking about like that that experience i described i had it was actually in the woods and it was open eye. i normally prefer closed eye dark meditation uh this was daylight in the woods open-eyed and it, i must have ingested obviously so much that everything just kind of it was almost like closed eyed the experience that's how it, intense and 10 grounds uh, yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah dried, yeah, um, <laughs> dried. Oh god! And I know people yeah. that go. We've had, you know, we have friends of the show and people that comment and send us emails and stuff that have gone way deeper. We're talking thirty, forty, and they, I can't even get into the some of the stuff that they're getting into. So, um, I mean, I've yeah. heard it's plateaus after a certain. Uh, dosage. Yeah, yeah. Have I, you ever I, tried five uh, meo? I have not. We actually, Maurice and I, that's the only psychedelic. I mean, I can't speak for Maurice. That's really the only psychedelic that I haven't experienced. One of the mainstream ones. I'm trying to think. That and I've never experienced ketamine. Those are the two that I've never. But ketamine's kind of borderline psychedelic. I don't even know if I would get some. Well, in interesting you say that because um, so we've teamed up with the psychology department at uh, Exeter University and um, it's led. There's a lab led by Professor Celia Morgan, who's one of the world-leading experts in ketamine. <clears throat> and, um, we've heard a lot about their research, and there was this qualitative uh, paper that came out on it recently, and it just showed to me that ketamine is a psychedelic, right? It really is. People at high enough doses in the right setting, people can have visions, you know, just like psilocybin or whatever. And um, but then people, some people say, no, it's not. It's a tranquilizer and it's not a, doesn't act on the serotonin receptors like the classic, you know, classic psychedelics. So it can't be a psychedelic. However, they also exclude nitrous oxide for the same reason. And the effects of ketamine and nitrous oxide are quite similar, interestingly. Um, but when you look at the word psychedelic, again, going back to the history to understand it fully, right? Um, who coined it? The psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond friend of Aldous Huxley, John Smithies. Um, he coined it 
in a, it was published in the paper in 1957, although he spoke about it with Huxley in, in correspondence the year before. But 1957, this paper came out where he actually made it public, this word psychedelic. And in it, he doesn't restrict it to, you know, are those drugs acting on serotonin receptors. Um, he included nitrous oxide and related it to William James. In fact, he was really, you know, um, enthusiastic about all the philosophical aspects of psychedelics, and that even though he was a psychiatrist, in that original paper. So when you look at that original paper, you know, you realize that the word psychedelic really, uh, it means literally mind manifesting, of course, but um, it's very, it's broad in scope. And mm. he even thanks indigenous communities, you know, around the world, he says they're never referenced, but you know, they, they, they've obviously got a craft of science in this, that we are, are just sort of um, beginning to re, to sort of get back in touch with, as it were. But so when you read that and you, re you read what he describes as psychedelics, certainly ketamine, that's sufficient doses, is a we should be, he would include that as a, as a psychedelic. I consider that. it, I just consider it one of like the outlier ones, like kind of how you mentioned nitrous. Like we, we grew up in a community with like Grateful Dead and Fish, these bands where nitrous tanks, I mean, it sounds like an airport when you're hanging out on Shake, it's called Shakedown Street outside the concert. Uh, and we're talking like large, large amounts of nitrous. You know, they call it hippie oh, yeah. crack. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we're, I'm familiar with both and I've had a lot of friends, you know, you know, that have done both. And uh, I just, for me, it's, I'm not going out there searching for things. If things come to me, I'm willing to try them, but I'm not going out. I mean, I'm too old to be out there, you know, looking for things. So, yeah, um, sure. with yeah. 5 you, you must be very careful. I mean, it's, oh, it's absolutely. Like, yeah, it's a uh, very, very powerful. Okay, compared if you're used to ten grams, okay, maybe not, but even compared to that, it's it's uh, probably something else. It's, In my younger years, we definitely used to push the boundaries for sure. I would mix things and take yeah. things, yeah. you know, over the top, and that's before I had reverence. Now I don't need a ton, and I can kind of get to those places without a right. ton. So, um, I want to pivot here before we wrap this up and get to the Patreon segment, but I want to talk about a little bit about like time and time and space. Um, I've heard you talk a little bit about time. I forget what I was listening to, but, um, we have this time space dimension, right? Um, and it seems to be somewhat constant. And then we have our perception of that time space, which can be altered via psychedelic experience, uh, near death experiences, um, altered states of consciousness, almost like, you know, the, sometimes if you're about to get in an accident and you have that precog where everything slows down for a second, you know, and I find that interesting. So how do you think about that relationship? Do you think something weirder is at play or do you think, for instance, we know time and space, the more gravity there is, uh, the more time slows down. But in terms of like, are we, are we reacting to that? Like, is that, is it our biology that's, that's causing us to have a reaction of perception or is it something weirder in connection there <laughs> i mean these are deep mysteries i don't know if i'm really i can answer in any way but you're i am a um, philosopher bro well, <laughs> you're the person to ask you well, I, well you know philosophers have got more questions than answers right so there you go um but i would say this that um yeah so i spoke about time i spoke about timelessness actually uh, recently in this in this uh le little lecture i gave online um the the belief that and this relates to the psychedelic mystical states and that you know you believe that you um can experience 
timelessness. Some people think that, you know, the condition of experience is time. You know, you can't have experience without time, you know, going on. Um, but, you know, Deleuze says you can have an experience of timelessness basing it on his understanding of Spinoza. And I, I would argue that Spinoza's intellectual love of God is also an experience of timelessness because essentially time, as you intimated there, it's multifaceted, but um, there's, one must make a distinction, if one can, between subjective experience of time and any objective reality of time. This is, re this is very interesting. So, um, as you were saying, there's what Bergson calls rhythms of duration. In other words, um, speeds at which you experience time. You can, life can go in slow motion if you're about to have an accident, for example, uh, or on psychedelics. Um, that mean, but is that wrong? Is that hallucination? Or is it just another way of experiencing reality again? It's very hard to say um, what time is if it's not experienced. In fact, it seems that um, experience must be a condition of time, but time need not be a condition of experience, right? Mm. Um, at the speed of light, of course, according to relativity, time stops. Is that perspective wrong? Uh, not necessarily. If that were the case, then again, there's another case for timelessness. Uh, again, Einstein according with Spinoza from a different angle. There are also, of course, um, the the, the the now. I mean, another big problem in philosophy is this notion of the specious present, the duration of now. How long is that? You know, um, and how much is that based on us humans? Other animals probably have perhaps a longer now, a shorter now. With the psychedelics as well, it seems like the duration of now extends or contracts um, again what how can one therefore say that there's a real as it were mind independent now present it seems even like that the determination of the past and the future dependent on your consciousness your experience uh, as well which means that take away the mind it seems mm. that you can't have the past and the future and the present anymore as a trichotomy as a determined trichotomy so there's a really interesting uh, aspect about um, how time relates to the mind. Um, how much, how much, what we know it's dependent on the mind. The interesting question is to what extent, if it's completely determined by the mind, then um, in reality, we have timelessness, which then m one could then speculate that psychedelic experiences takes one into this timelessness, this other way of seeing reality. Also, I mean, if you say, well, time and sense is determined by the brain and blah, 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 of course, that then assumes this neuroessentialism that I was speaking about before, which then has a lot of other issues. The main issues, again, are, you know, this hard problem of consciousness, upward causation, matter to mind, and also something I haven't mentioned, mental causation, mind to matter. We believe that our intelligence, our conscious calculations, our desires have an effect upon the world. This is logically uh, incoherent, according to neuroessentialism, but yet it's if you deny it, it's anti-evolutionary. Why would we have evolved it if it has no purpose mentality at all? So you get into all these weird paradoxes. Right. You know? In other words, our present understanding of reality just leads to paradoxes every way you look. So the interesting thing for me is, do psychedelics offer different ways of looking at reality that might inform these paradoxes, overcoming these paradoxes? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've had I've heard um, a philosopher describe, you know, the mind body thing as like, um, you know, the the mind is to the brain is like what a fist is to a hand. You know, it's the same thing. It's just a different form of that thing. If that makes sense, I don't know. That's one. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Um, 
it's just like a language thing, really. And I think that if you look at philosophy, a lot of the evolution of philosophy has been broken down through like, you know, parsing like what's what in terms of language and what, you know, I think last time we had you on an example would be Leibniz is law of indiscernibles and that for two things to be exactly the same, one must be true. The all They must all have the same properties. So mind and body are different in the sense that like mind is a completely different thing than material or body but if everything's one then they are the same thing but you i think what you your response was that was like a language thing that they figured out or something yeah i mean just i'm just thinking now about i mean this is what spinoza would say mind body are the same thing essentially seen from two different perspectives and interestingly with regard to the dimensions of space time as you're mentioning it linking it there um one of the big problems about understanding the the identity then of mind and matter brain and body is um or brain and mind rather is that uh, is spatial dissimilarities so like if you think of a triangle it has certain properties three angles three sides blah 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 um if you correlate that then to part of the activity in the occipital lobe that will also have spatial properties but they will not be the same spatial properties obviously a triangle doesn't manifest itself in your brain physically right. when you think of a triangle right so how can the same thing have two types of spatial property and yet be the same thing now to understand this um it, so the last chapter in my book uh, modes of sentience is, is is about this really and it talks about two types of space so there's external space and there's a mental space and then three there's twofold space as bertrand russell called it and then i speak about something called threefold space extending that and then we talk about um, how that relates to different dimensions of space understanding space not just as time is a fourth dimension but um five six seven dimensions of space and how um this might be unified in um in a theory that cd broad moore and um john smithies came uh, sort of um speculated so the so understanding the relation of mind and matter actually part of that involves looking at space how does space and sentience relate this is a really complex question that no one's really um answered no one's really aware of you know but it's fundamental J william james wrote this great essay called um does consciousness exist I might have mentioned where um he questions whether as i was saying before you know like whether um the mind is purely spatial this is this is an assumption mm. So uh, yeah, that and then, and then there's interesting relationships between um, spatiality and feeling that um, the panpsychist and mathematician W. K. Clifford spoke of, which I again um, mentioned in my in this forthcoming book, Modes of Sentience. It's a very speculative essay, you know, and uh, but nonetheless, it opens up. It just it complicates this whole mind matter mystery even more. Yeah. No interesting stuff, and I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. We're going to wrap it up here, and we're going to do a Patreon segment with you. I think in the Patreon segment, maybe we'll talk about psychedelic entities and kind of unpack that a little. Um, but uh, everybody go check out Peter's book. I have the link down below. It comes out on the 9th for the hardcover, and then I think you said the 14th for uh, the paperback. Um. Uh, no, the fourteen. Uh, the paperback will come out a bit, bit later actually. Bit, bit so later, okay. I, I think the hardback comes out from the printers on the ninth. It will be sent. You'll hopefully get it before Christmas. It's officially out on the fourteenth. Paperback, I think January, and the Kindle version as well later. 
shout out to psychedelic press as well um and uh yeah check out peter's website i have the link down below there as well and one more time, if you're interested, head on over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. We're about to do one right now with Peter. I will upload it later today. And uh, we're also on Discord as well, so check that out. And, uh, yeah, um, also we have a merch store if anybody's interested. Tons of new stuff on there. Put some new designs up there. We've got the – I designed a Portara of Naxos T-shirt and uh, – an Anubis uh, t-shirt as well. So go check those out. Uh, but listen, Peter, I really appreciate the time. Uh, this has been a fun conversation. We'll, we'll definitely have to have you back on in the future. There's just so much stuff to discuss in this realm of things. And uh, I really like your take. And um, we need more open-minded people that are willing to take chances. And, you know, there's no harm in speculating or hypothesizing if there's some basis to it. And I don't think enough people do that. So... Uh, I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, So, uh, yeah. So check that stuff out. We love everybody. Stay safe out there, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Peace. Peace.